My second favorite comedy album of all time is uh, the album King Baby by a stand-up comedian named Jim Gaffigan. Angie and I have seen Jim Gaffigan a couple times. Uh, he has, in this, this um, album, he has an entire three-minute routine about enjoying laziness, which is something that appeals to me. Um, and in the middle of the routine, he has this little joke that goes like this. We all have the same attitude on infomercials. Who's watching this crap? And then three minutes later, that's a good point. Maybe I need a knife that can cut a penny. Um, like all the best observational stand-up routines, it's funny because it's both absolutely absurd and at the same time totally relatable. I've been in the exact same situation watching commercials for some ridiculous product that chops vegetables better or cooks without sticking to the pan or can withstand being run over by a Mack truck or whatever. And the host of the infomercial is like an over-caffeinated rodent that just excited about every little detail with phrases like five easy payments and limited time offer and act now. They're thrown around like confetti to entice the brain and conjure the credit card. And it's hard not to fall prey to that at least a little bit. The reason the joke works is the same reason that infomercials work. We eventually get worn down by the over-enthusiasm and the embellished necessity of the stupid little gadget being shoved down our throats. I think of, on, I watch a lot of TSN, I watch a lot of sports, and there's a, an extended commercial for this thing you put in your nose and it cleans out your system if you're sick, and it's so ridiculous, the smiling woman squeezing this thing during, it's, um, it makes me laugh every time, but every time that I get a little bit sick, I think, I should get that, that TSN nose thing. You start to think about how replaceable your old product is, given how superior this new product seems to be, and how affordable it is, if you call in the next 20 minutes. Maybe you think, I need a knife that can cut a penny. Even though nobody needs a knife that can cut a penny. You need a knife that can cut a carrot, not coinage. But in our disposable, consumption-driven, consumerist society, everything is replaceable so long as something better comes along. Replacing goods should only really happen when it's necessary. And when you're watching brain-dead television at 2 in the morning, you are not in the mental state to determine necessity. Well, in the same way that we should be reluctant to replace our cooking ware, the story of scripture shows that God himself is reluctant to replace people and institutions that he has established. He has reasons for making the choices he makes and for making the promises he makes, and he knows best. He's also reluctant to overturn those same promises and institutions. He's far more willing and, and far more likely to take a patient route willing to endure ineffective practices and, and ineffective leaders for centuries if he has to, to give his people the chance to turn from their waywardness. But even for God, sometimes enough is enough. Sometimes even the most sacred customs and longest standing promises must be overturned, reworked, or even replaced. Sometimes you need the knife that can cut the penny, because the old knife has proven itself ineffective in even the most basic functions. That's the case in this morning's passage with one exception. With infomercials, there's always a sense that the new product is unnecessary. Who is buying this garbage, as Jim Gaffigan says? But with today's story, the contrast between the old product and the new product is very stark. The need for the priesthood of Israel to be replaced is obvious. And the successor who will replace them is top-of-the-line, grade-A material. So let's read 1 Samuel 2, 11-36. But we're going to start by reading up to verse 26. So this is after the song of Hannah. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Eli's sons were wicked men, 
They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever someone... Or sorry, whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first and then take whatever you want, the servant would then answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Ephod's like a chest protector shawl thing. Each year, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. We spent the last couple weeks looking at the story of Hannah the first hero in the books of Samuel and the mother of the titular kingmaker. Hannah's story isn't just the story of how Samuel was born. Rather, Hannah's story is the paradigm which the entire rest of the narrative of Samuel and Saul and David will follow. They will all follow the same template. Hannah's story is the story of 1 and 2 Samuel, which is why her story kicks off the books of Samuel and which is why her song of celebration is given such prominence in these early chapters. Hannah's song teaches the following message, and I stole this right from a slide from last week, that when Israel and or her kings get self-satisfied and proud and arrogant, then death and lowliness will come. But when Israel and or her king are humble and faithful and hungry for their God, they will be lifted up and exalted like never before. That's the theme, that's the whole message of Hannah's song, and that's the dominant theme of the entire story of the rise of Israel's kings. Serve yourself and stumble. Serve your Lord and be lifted up. Well, would you like proof about this major theme? Then may I introduce you to a real pair of losers in Hophni and Phinehas. And may I contrast their ineptitude and wickedness with the innocence and rise to prominence of our hero, Samuel. Hophni and Phinehas are the two priests who are taking the meat and sleeping with the women in the temple. They are Eli's sons. Eli's the head priest. His sons are the priests, and they are terrible. The comparison made by the historians and authors of 1st and 2nd Samuel is intended to be brutal, the comparison between Samuel and Hophni and Phinehas. And I think that they're successful in in showing just how brutal the contrast is. This is a major turning point in Israel's history, as the mantle of leadership will be passed from priests and judges to prophets and kings. 
The priesthood will retain its significance culturally, religiously. They're still important. But they won't be the leaders of Israel anymore. In fact, the priesthood needs to be replaced. This chapter sets the stage for not only the necessity of that replacement, why the replacement had to happen, but also the significance of the one who God chooses as the agent of that replacement, and that's Samuel. In my version of the NIV, I have an older version of the NIV. There's also a newer version. In the older version, Hophni and Phinehas are labeled wicked men in verse, whatever it is, 17. Uh, Yeah, they're called wicked men. In the newer version of the NIV, it actually reads that these two were scoundrels, which is a way better word. What a great word. They're, They're scoundrels. I looked it up, and the word scoundrel appears 11 times in the Old Testament, which is fabulous each and every time. What a great insult. You scoundrel. And each time it's used in the Old Testament, it has the same connotation. Somebody who plots and schemes in a selfish, conniving, evil way. A trickster. Um, Somebody who's only in it for themselves. The actual Hebrew doesn't say wicked man or scoundrel. The actual Hebrew says that Hophni and Phinehas were sons of Belial. And Belial is a Hebrew term for Satan. So the authors of 1 Samuel says they're literally sons of the devil. The irony of the use of that term is that one chapter earlier in 1 Samuel 1, when our hero Hannah is weeping and praying silently at the tabernacle, Eli mistakes her for a wicked drunk woman and she is labeled a daughter of Belial, a daughter of Satan. That's what Eli thinks she is when he first sees her. Eli initially perceives her as a daughter of Satan, but his own sons are the ones behaving as sons of the devil. From the beginning right from chapter 1 into now, it's clear that the priesthood of Israel is tremendously ignorant and corrupt. True God-honoring faith by a lowly servant of Yahweh is labeled wicked, daughter of the devil. But despicably self-serving and exploitatively wicked behavior, like Hophni and Phinehas, is normalized and continues unchecked. But not for long, not once God has his say. And so the sons of Eli are definitely sons of Belial. They are scoundrels. Their wickedness has an obvious external corruption, as well as a more insidious and destructive inward corruption. So we'll talk about both the external and internal. The external components are twofold. A, they steal the choicest meats from the offerings to God and threaten to harm those who stand up to them, because it's wrong. And B, they openly victimize the women who serve at the tabernacle, using them as their own personal sexual playthings. When it comes to Hophni and, Phineas handling, Hophni and Phineas's handling of the meat offerings, the sin isn't in the partaking. It's not a sin that they ate some of the meat that was given for, for an offering. In fact, the law allows for priests to take a share of the burnt offering, with strict guidelines, of course. In Leviticus 7, and Leviticus is basically a hand guide book for priesthood, um, it declares that when a bird is offered, the priest may eat the breast and the right thigh but the fat and the rest of the meat must be burned on the altar. That's because in that culture, the fatty meat was considered the choice meat. The best meat, the fatty meat, goes to God. But the priests deserve a portion as well for their service. And so they get the the breast and the thigh, which is kind of the meat that we go for today. But in, in those days, it was like the spare meat. It was the leftover meat. You wanted the fat meat. This is gross. Um Later in Deuteronomy 18, similar restrictions were given regarding mammal offerings. It says in Deuteronomy 18, this is the share due to the priests from the people who sacrifice a bull or a sheep, the shoulder, the internal organs, and the meat from the head. Thanks a lot, God. You get the shoulder, the guts, and the meat from the head. Thanks, but no thanks. I'll stick to vegetables. 
But at least there were clear guidelines about what kind of meats the priests were to be taking for themselves. Breast and thigh if it's a bird, shoulder, internal organs, and head meat if, if it's a mammal. Hophni and Phineas, however, well, their system included pilfering the choicest cuts of meat, including the fatty portions that are designated explicitly to God alone. The fat, you were never to drink the blood, and the fat was to be burned on the altar. That was the best portion in, in their eyes. And they, that's what they took for themselves. And then they threatened violence on anyone who stood up to them. Anyone who had the guts to say, uh, doesn't it say in God's law you're not supposed to eat that? And if somebody threatened to not give the meat they wanted, they would beat them up. Basically, Hophni and Phineas were bullies, stealing lunches from the common folk who offered God the best that they could give. And then, to make matters worse, not only did they illegally satiate their food appetite, they also immorally satiated their sexual appetites. And they did both brazenly and openly, not caring about their role as leaders of Israel. But as always, the outward corruption only serves to indicate a deeper, uglier, more brutally condemning form of inward corruption. The outward acts, they're only evil because they indicate something inward. Something's wrong with the heart. That's always true of sin. And that inward corruption is nicely summarized in verse 17, when it says, The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. They used holy things for self-serving purposes because they could not have cared less about the God that they were ordained to serve. They were supposed to be the guardians of holiness for all Israel. Instead, they took what people offered and worshipped to God and filled themselves instead. They didn't serve God. They only served their own desires and appetites. Hophni and Phineas. It's roughly equivalent to me standing in front of all of you, watching you drop cash in the offering plates, and then plunging my hands in and, and taking whatever 20s I could, and then having the nerve to stand at the pulpit and flip through porn websites. That's what they're doing. They used holy things for self-serving purposes because they couldn't have cared less about the God they were ordained to serve. And then, when Dennis, a peasant farmer from Nesto, I mean Jericho, says, hey, put that money back in the dish... Then I send Dale over to break Dennis's legs. It's pretty scummy. In fact, it's actually more corrupt than that scenario that would never, ever, ever happen. It's actually more corrupt than that, if you can believe it, because these are holy, designated, holy, set-apart, sacred things of Israel, and these are holy, set-apart, sacred leaders of Israel serving in the sacred tent of the Most High God, not some rural pastor from the middle of Alberta somewhere. These are the holy people of God's, of the holy nation on earth, serving in the holy location of God's presence, and they still have the nerve to show contempt like they do. Hophni and Phinehas, sons of Eli, are an excellent example of everything Hannah protested about in her powerful poem earlier in the chapter. These are words taken right from Hannah's poem. They are proud and arrogant, and God sees their deeds. They are full but not satisfied, and their hunger is consuming them, as Hannah wrote. Her warning might be addressed directly to them. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken, as it says in verse 9. They derive their strength from the authority of the office they hold, and they callously abuse that office for gain and personal satisfaction. Adding to the evil of the office of priesthood in Israel, so it's not just that Hophni and Phinehas are this wayward and corrupt, 
Adding to that is the fact that Eli is completely unable to control his own sons. Remember, in ancient Israel, children were expected to respect their parents under punishment of death. In fact, in in God's top 10 list of of rules you must follow, obeying your parents, respecting your parents is number five. Respecting your parents is ahead of murder, adultery, and theft. It's the first of the interpersonal commandments you need to obey. Honor your parents. Respect them. Wayward children who refused to heed the guidance of their parents were regarded as tremendously shameful for the parents, which meant everything in an honor-shame society like the world of Eli and his sons. In other words, Eli's inability to control his sons is, is completely condemning to Eli himself. And we'll see, the later, we'll see the same problem crop up later for David. David's unable to control his sons too. And Eli's interesting because he seems to be an upright man himself. He could identify evil, well, except for his first meeting with Hannah in chapter 1. But he knew what evil was, and he knew that his sons were corrupt and wayward. But his inability to have his sons respect him made him worse than powerless. It made him complicit with their sinfulness. Their shame becomes his shame. Their sins were on his head. And I am not saying that is necessarily true for you parents today. But in that world, that was absolutely the case. The sins of the child became the sins of the parent because the parent was supposed to have absolute control. Basically, the sum of Eli's attempts to control his sons is a pathetic finger wagging. In verse 24, he says, No, my sons, the report I hear among God's people is not good. Whoa, those are tough words. Not good? That's some stern parenting. You really told them should have amped up the discipline a little more because punishment is coming. And we'll read about that in a couple minutes. But first, let's flesh out the contrast at the center of this passage. The depravity of Hophni and Phinehas, and by extension Eli, is obvious. They deserve whatever is coming to them because they are entirely self-serving and proud and corrupt. In fact, in 2.17, the Hebrew states that their sins were gedola, or great. Their sins were very great. Well, the root of that word, gedola, is the same word used three times to describe the contrasting figure to Hophni and Phinehas, the young boy Samuel. Samuel is highlighted three times in verses 11 to 26. There's an amplification of his growth and maturity and innocence each time. Each time you, they, they bring Samuel back to focus, each time he's a little greater. Um, In verse 11, Samuel the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Next time we meet him in verse 18, immediately after learning about the greatness of the sins of the sons of Eli, it states that Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. It's almost certainly intentional that between the first mention of Samuel and his service and the second mention of Samuel and his service, Eli disappears from the picture altogether. First he ministers the Lord under Eli, and then he's ministering directly before the Lord, no Eli in sight, even though Eli is very much present. God is taking over. Eli is not the one in power and control. Hophni and Phinehas are not the ones in power and control. Samuel's not serving under them. Samuel is serving directly before the Lord, and it's the Lord who's in power and control. And that little linen ephod that it mentions that his mom makes for him every year, how darling is that? How adorable is that? But it also serves as a contrast between Samuel and Hophni and Phinehas. Those sinful priests are covered in the stench and the filth of their wickedness. 
But Samuel is pure and spotless and innocent in his homemade linens. It makes me think of Abe and Eva making Ethan a little suit, and he shows up to church in a cute little suit. That's the, pic- that's the picture of Samuel. That's, that's, it's a portrait of innocence, contrasting the, the wickedness of Hophni and Phinehas. Eli's sons ignore him. They shame him. They show contempt to him. But Hannah's son, the miracle child, however, is cared for gently by his parent and responds with genuine faithful service to the God who brought him into existence and is carefully grooming him for greater service. Eli's sons, they could care less. Hannah's son, the miracle child, he cares very much. Another contrast. And as a beautiful response to Hannah's selfless gift of a son to serve Yahweh, Yahweh responds by giving Hannah a full family to love because A, she's proven her greatest desire is for God to be glorified. So, of course, God will always reward that kind of desire. If our heart is for him to be glorified, he'll reward us every time. And B, she's proven she can raise children in love of the Lord. So why wouldn't God increase the size of her family? It's just like Abraham being faithful to his promise. He was willing to sacrifice his firstborn, so God multiplied his offspring. The same is true with Hannah. But there's a contrast there. Hannah turns her son over to service and is raised up. Eli, whose sons are born into the service and they do nothing to deserve it, they're brought down. The last mention of Samuel in this chapter is verse 26, which reads, The boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. This is the greatness root word that I mentioned earlier. Samuel is growing into a great man of God, and while Hophni and Phinehas act as if they're great, they are only great sinners, and they're only bringing great judgment on themselves. The nation despises the official leaders because they dishonor the God they supposedly serve, and they serve themselves only. Their prominence will fade dramatically. Samuel, though, so Hophni and Phinehas, they're going downhill. Samuel, on the other hand, He's on the fast track upwards. He has the loyalty and respect of the entire community, which Hophni and Phinehas don't have, despite being a relative outsider to the sacred office of priesthood. Due to his faithful service and genuine humility, Samuel will be raised up to greatest prominence, just as Hannah's song declares. So that's the last we hear about Samuel for this chapter. It's not the last we'll hear of Samuel, obviously, but for this chapter, that's it. But it's not the last we hear of the great ineptitude of Eli or the great wickedness of his sons. Let's read the rest of the chapter, 27 to 36. And I don't have as much to say about this portion as I did about the earlier portion. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore, and in messages like this, that therefore means the bomb's about to drop. Therefore, the the Lord, the God of Israel declares... I promised that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your family line and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, in your family line there will never be an old man. 
Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears and to grieve your heart, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house, and he will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a crust of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. That is a bombshell. Can you imagine getting that message? This is one of a few stories of the sudden appearance of a mysterious man of God that crop up from time to time in the Old Testament, and their appearance rarely means good news to the recipient of their message. Usually they bring messages of judgment, as is the case here. Such messages of judgment follow a clear outline. There's an introduction. This is what the Lord says. There's an accusation. In this case, it's three questions. Did I not clearly reveal myself to to your father's ancestors? Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me? Those are three pretty, pretty condemning questions. Mess, uh, so introduction, accusation, and then an announcement. And that's everything that happens after the therefore in verse 30. God had made promises to Eli's ancestors, promises that would last forever, forever. But as always, those promises come with conditions. Forever is conditional. At this crucial turning point in Israel's history, God cannot abide a leadership that is so self-servingly evil and corrupt. Israel's line of priests up to Eli were a cast iron pan. They lasted forever, but they were covered with stains and scuff marks from past service. Samuel represents the replacement model, untainted by the sins that have stuck to Eli's priesthood. As mentioned before, it is not lightly that God turns his back on promises and covenants that he's made to his servants in the past. But as he declares emphatically in verse 30, far be it from me to keep you in power forever. Far be it from me. Far be it from me to consider, continue honoring these past promises. Why would he, given the depravity of the priests who are supposed to serve in his name? Why would he continue their line when they're that depraved? Holiness and humble service are too crucially important to continue being twisted out of shape by men who only worship themselves. The whole ugly affair is summarized in the next line. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. It's like a line taken directly from Hannah's poem. It's, it's exactly the theme of Hannah's poem coming up again, and it will continue to come up again and again. And for dishonoring God Almighty in such profoundly blatant ways, the entire destiny of Eli's lineage will be altered dramatically. We'd be torn apart. Eli himself will be the last old man in his priestly line as his two sons will tragically die on the same day, which, spoiler alert, will happen in two more chapters in chapter 4, which precipitates the death of Eli himself. Many years later, in 1 Samuel 22, 85 descendants of Eli meet a terribly violent death in a real low point of Israel's monarchy, Israel's first monarchy, Saul's monarchy. Eventually, by the time we reach the next book, so after 2 Samuel is 1 Kings, and by the time 1 Kings chapter 2 rolls around, the priesthood will be transferred altogether to the line of Zadok, taken away from Eli's house and given to the house of Zadok, and the judgment will be complete. And so those are the dual contrasting purposes of 1 Samuel 2, 11 to 36, what we just read. 
First, to highlight the corrupt selfishness of the ruling priests who show contempt to Yahweh by serving only themselves. Second, to contrast that with Samuel, who is being groomed and prepared for obedient service to God himself by God himself in order to bring about a sharp turning point in the history of Israel. The proud and self-serving will fall, just as Hannah proclaimed, and the lowly faithful will be raised up, just as Hannah proclaimed. I think that there is a powerful message in this story for us. Hophni and Phineas thought that they were secure simply because of their proximity to holiness, without ever taking their call to, to holiness seriously. They are not punished for a few wayward mistakes. They're being punished for routine disregard and contempt towards the worship of God himself, contempt towards God himself. They disallowed those who they were supposed to care for from properly worshiping their God, and they pursued only their own ravenous appetites of their stomach and their sexual desires. I hate messages of judgment. You've heard enough sermons from me to know that I hate taking this side of the thing. But when you read a story like this, it's pretty hard to escape. There's a great number of nominal Christians in the West who speak the right words and perform the right ceremonies and believe the right things, but have hearts that demonstrate pure selfishness and motives and contempt towards Jesus' actual commands of humility and forgiveness and compassion. They seem like they've got it all together because of their proximity to holiness, but all they ever do is, is build callousness on their hearts towards God and towards others. Many so-called Christians will find themselves on the wrong side of judgment. As it says in the parable we read earlier, they will stand at the door, they'll say, why are we be being kicked out? We knew who you were. We sang your songs. We proclaimed your name. But what's Jesus going to say to them? Away from you. I never knew you. He never, he never knew them. They thought their proximity to holiness would save them without any actual engagement in holiness itself. They are the modern whitewashed tombs. They are the wolves in sheep's clothing. They are clean and groomed and proper like Samuel in his little linen ephod. They look like that on the outside, but they are filthy and dead and destructive on the inside. Their inner death, like Hophni and Phinehas, is marked by their unwillingness to submit their hearts and lives over to Christ. Jesus is life. Apart from him, we are dead things with entirely self-serving intentions. I see that so abundantly clear in my life. Apart from Jesus, I serve only myself. I am a dead thing. Modern-day sons of Eli are those who stand next to holy things but obscure the goodness and glory of God by, by caving to their own desires, their own self-righteousness, rather than committing their hearts and lives to loving God and loving all their neighbors as they love themselves. Not their, just their, their neighbors who look and act and behave like themselves, all their neighbors. They consume and consume and consume, satisfying themselves by trampling on those around them, showing contempt to the God that they claim to serve. Notice that God's condemnation in Scripture isn't towards the people, but towards the priests. God's harshest judgment is always reserved for those who ought to know better, but who have hardened their hearts against God and against neighbor. That was Jesus' entire issue with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They said they were so self-righteous, they thought they were in with God, and they put up barriers so that nobody else could be in with God. They were so self-righteous that it made them unloving, uncaring towards others, and ultimately towards God himself. That's the whole problem with the religious elite in Jesus' day. And 
those religious elite, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the whole system of religion that the Old Testament proclaims, that wasn't replaced for engaging in impurities, for, for dabbling in sin here and there as we all do. Rather, they were replaced for holding their own self-righteous purity as a weapon of judgment against everyone around them. That's the spectrum of judgment. On one end, maybe you openly embrace sin, like Hophni and Phinehas, even though you stand in the presence of God and you know better. You still are openly sinful. On the other end of the spectrum, maybe you avoid open sin altogether. You are committed to purity, but your corruption is your unwillingness to show love to those who are openly sinful who condemn people for not being as good as you. Those are the two ends of the spectrum. One is Hophni and Phinehas, one is the Pharisees and Sadducees. And somewhere in the middle, there's another option. Maybe you are Eli, seeing sin that you are responsible for and refusing to properly address it. The way we properly address it, well, it's already been properly addressed through Jesus. But our step, our role, is repentance and trust in Jesus' forgiveness. If you're unwilling to do that, you're just Eli. You see the sin and you do nothing about it. You might be a good guy. That's not enough. (laughs) Again, I hate messages like that. You're all sitting there with such stern faces. You're all so, is this me? Well, I think it's important to consider. I think it's important to think about. We all have room to grow. This is a warning to all of us, myself included, as pastor. My standard is, I don't know if it's higher, but... I'm just like Hoffie and I'm I'm the one up here proclaiming holy things. I'm the one who should be shaking the most. And I am. It's nerve-wracking to hear stories of these people who are sinful, who should know better, and they get replaced because they're so unwilling to engage in holiness properly, in humility, in service, in compassion to those around us. And and in, in the midst of all of this, is the, the, the innocence of Samuel. All Samuel does in chapter 2 is grow. That's all he does. It doesn't say what he's doing in particular, except that he is growing. There are no mighty acts yet, just steady growth. First he's serving under Eli, then Eli's nowhere in the picture, and he's serving directly in the presence of God. And then he's growing in stature and in prominence in the eyes of all the people. Everyone can see what a good young man he is. He just continues to grow. That's his only job here. A growing faith, a growing submission, and a growing willingness to serve. (laughs) Samuel is literally a child of grace because Hannah's name means grace. Excuse me. He is a miracle child, a a gracious gift to his family and to the nation of Israel. He is a literal child of grace learning to hear and obey God. That is all of our calling. That is what we are called to do in sacrifice, in submission, to just continue to grow. You will make mistakes. Samuel's not perfect. We're going to meet David pretty soon. He's far from perfect. But what does he do? He submits to God. Unlike Hophni and Phinehas, who submit only to their own desires. So no, you're not perfect. Yes, this is a warning for all of us who know holy things. But all you're asked to do is grow. To to continue to follow the one who saved you with grace. Just like Samuel. There's a new model that has appeared. Act now and get in on Samuel's deal or the cost will be great. Let's pray. God, uh, sometimes messages like this make us nervous and maybe that's a healthy thing. 
maybe passages like 1 Samuel 2 call us to reflect on the ways that we are wayward and corrupt. And those are numerous. We are um, we engage in open sin at times, and then we engage in self-righteousness at times, and we don't take responsibility at times for the sins we're responsible for. All of those things are true. But Father, we take all of those things and we bring them to Jesus. And we trust in his forgiveness. We trust that we are made holy by him, called to a holy purpose, to serve and to submit to you, to be slaves to righteousness, to be slaves to you, Jesus, a good king. So I pray that you would continue, Holy Spirit, to shape us and to grow us and to form us. Um, You replaced the priesthood. If you could replace the priesthood, you could replace any institution. But we trust in you, Jesus. We trust that in you our faith is secure, our promises are secure, our salvation is secure. But help us to be more and more like you, Jesus. Help us to be more and more in touch with your holiness. Um, Help us to avoid the judgment of Hophni and Phinehas by growing as Samuel does in your presence. We pray these things in your name. Amen. That's about as close to hellfire and brimstone as you're going to get from me. So uh, enjoy that. Have a great week, you guys. Sometimes you need the knife that can cut the penny because the old knife has proven itself ineffective in even the most basic functions. And the meat from the head... Thanks a lot, God. Then I send Dale over to break Dennis's legs. And he shows up to church in a cute little suit.